Isn't it fun to have, have perfect days? Uh, I remember a time uh, when we were at College Park, the pastor forgot his Bible, and he gets up to speak, you know, and he's going, I don't have my Bible, and he, you know, so had to run up all the way to his office, which was up the stairs and back in the back, and get his, get his Bible, you know, it's, things like that happen. So normally I put it up here first thing in the morning, but getting ready for the dinner kind of threw, threw things out of, out of sync. Let's go ahead and pray as we open up the word. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. We thank you for your love and your care and for the way you see us as we're going to be discussing in, in Paul's closing to the Philippian church. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, today we're going to close out the book of Philippians, and then next week we'll start the book of Colossians. Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 20. Now unto the God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Salute every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It was written to the Philippians from Rome by Epaphroditus. All right. So we're going to look at this uh, little statement. It's just a closing, closing out. But he starts out, Now unto the God and Father be glory forever and ever. God and Father. You know, it's an amazing thing as we look at this, God's title, our Father. You know, most religions, even the Jews, had trouble understanding God as Father. They had this picture of, the guy, you know, some guy looking down on you, ready to punish you for everything that wrong you did. And many Christians, unfortunately, have that kind of picture of God. They're looking at a God who, you know, and I describe it as he's playing whack-a-mole. You stick your head up and he smacks you. And that's how a lot of people picture God. If you dare stick your head up, he smashes you. That is not what God does. He loves us. You know, we sang this song, he loves us, and he wrote his love on Calvary by sending his son to die that is quite a bit of love to die for us and he says he's our father now Satan in our day and age is trying really hard to mess up the picture of a father with all the abusive fathers out there abandoned fathers you know I hate to use the word fathers for many of them they they make a kid and they leave they're not even a father they're just a sperm donor uh, and God is saying, I'm your father. Satan is trying to destroy the picture of father so that when God says, I'm your father, or I want to be your father, people have a hard time looking at that and saying, I don't want a father. You know, father beat me or abused me or you know, left, it, left us alone and we had to starve, or, you know, starve trying to survive. Satan is doing a really good job destroying the pictures that God uses. He's working hard to destroy in marriages because why? Because Jesus says the church is his bride to be glued together for all of eternity. And so we're having marriages being destroyed, the picture of their marriage the way it's supposed to be. In Genesis, when Adam woke up from his sleep when the rib was taken out, he woke up and said, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And it said they were glued together. Marriage is a picture of being glued together. And it's not to be broken, as our world does so easily. You know, God gave permission to break it for one reason and one reason only, and that is for adultery. 
And even then, he didn't say you had to get divorced if adultery occurred. He said it is the permissible reason for divorce. And yet we have our world saying, well, if you're just not liking each other, go ahead and get divorced. Now, this is not new to our world. In Jesus' day, there were, there were two schools of thought being taught by the rabbis. One was that you were glued together, the biblical view. The other was that you could get rid of your wife for any reason you felt like. I mean, they went way off the, way off the path. Uh, you know, and it literally said that if your wife burnt the dinner, you could divorce her. You know, this was how far off they went. We're not quite there yet. We're getting a lot closer to that than, than we've ever been. But Satan is trying to destroy pictures of family, pictures of father. You know, anything that says who he is, Satan is working to destroy. We as Christians and as a church need to be teaching young people how to follow God's way of doing things, how to stay together, how to be good parents. You know, one of the things I've prayed very hard for my kids is that they would get married to very godly people who were raised in a godly manner because there are so many of them that weren't. It's very hard to come from a broken home and stay intact. It can happen with God's help, but most people who come from a broken home, they, get, they have an example of when the times get tough, run. And that's what they're taught, and they do that. And Satan is doing this kind of thing. And Paul is saying, God, your father. What is a father supposed to be? The one who protects, the one who cares, the one who provides. Man, that's my experience with God. He is a father providing everything we need. My God, who shall, shall supply all your needs according to his riches, according to his riches. God has great riches, and he wants to provide for us. He wants to protect us. As we're going through the book of Psalms, it says, Hide in God. He is our great tower. He is our strong tower. He, he's our shield. He's our buckler. Ephesians says, Put on the whole armor of God, which is every piece of the armor is Jesus Christ. We're to put on Christ. We're to hide in Christ. He wants to protect and you know what? That's the best protection you can have. When you learn to trust in God, you're in the best protection you can possibly have. Then he says, as he goes on, Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Be glory. Have you ever thought about the word glory? Glory literally means brightness, splendor, majesty, that describes our God. He is light. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me except by the Father. He is life. He is our way. He is our truth. He was the very first light. The first day in, in creation was light and darkness, and God generated light. There was not a sun made in the first day. They had light and dark without a sun. And it wasn't until later on that he created the sun and the stars. But we look at this. He is light. He is to be lifted up and glorified. You know, how many times do we kind of look and, you know, and in our mind, we may not say these words, but how many times have we acted in, in a way that we said, God, have you lost control of everything going on around me? You know, when everything bad starts happening, you know, 
we may not say, God, you've you totally lost it, but, you know, we think it. You know, we think it by going, God, I just, uh, everything's wrong. How can you let this stuff happen? God, you've lost your mind. You've lost control. We need to be very careful with that kind of attitude. God is always in control. Nothing happens to us unless God allows it. This is one of the reasons I love the book of Job, especially those first couple chapters where it tells us what was going on and why Job went through all everything he went through. God, God the Father says to Satan, where have you been? I've been walking around the earth, you know, looking, you know, basically looking for something, trouble, somewhere to cause trouble. And you know, God says, have you considered Job? <laughs> have you ever thought that God has pointed you out to Satan at some point? Have you considered my servant? <laughs> Put your name in there. And Job says, and Satan goes, yeah, I've considered that servant, but you haven't let me touch that servant. And God says, okay, you can do. Yeah. Each time Job was protected by God, he says the first time, okay, you can take his stuff away, he's still going to love me. Then he says you can take his health away. The one thing God didn't let Satan do is take his life away. Now, does that mean God never let Satan take a life? No, we see lots of cases where people have been martyred for God. But God will limit Satan to some level. And we need to be aware that God is always in control. And he always has a good plan for us. We may not think it's a good plan when we're going through it. We may kind of think, God, you've totally lost it. You know, and I'm sure Job was like that. Uh, God, uh, you know, I've gone from being the richest man around to uh, the poorest man. I have nothing. You've taken all of my possessions. I can't even give you a sacrifice anymore because you've taken all my animals. God, I don't know what's going on. He didn't have the Bible to say that God's going to be faithful. He only knew God. We have the Bible to tell us that God will be faithful. And he restores. If he doesn't take our life to bring us into heaven, which, by the way, is the greatest thing that can happen to us as a Christian. You know, and I've said this over and over. You know, the best thing that can happen to a Christian is to go home. We need to believe that. When I, when I was younger, I used to tell people, the, the worst thing you can do to me is almost kill me. If they killed me, I went to heaven. If they almost killed me, I had to suffer. I didn't want them to almost kill me. I'm going to, if you're going to make me suffer, do it all the way. Send me home. But do we think that way? Are we really sure that our ultimate best thing that can happen to us is to die? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, Paul says. You know, he, told the, he told in one church, he goes, I'm in a battle between two thoughts. It is better for me to go home, but it's better for you that I stay here and teach you. Paul wanted to go home. All Christians should want to go home. Not so badly that we're willing to kill ourselves. Don't go too far on that belief. But we should be looking forward to the day when we leave this world and we go home. This world is not our home. And if you're at home in this world, you better check your Christianity out because you shouldn't be at home in this world. It should be okay. You should be surviving. But it should never feel like home. You should always be longing for the day when you're going to be spending it with God. And this is what he says, to God be the glory. 
God, you are wonderful. You do these great things. You're in control. You have a good plan. God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. Keep that in mind. All the time, God is good. When you think that everything bad is happening to you and somehow God has lost control, remember, all the time, God is good. Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. He's going to turn whatever we're going through to good. Not necessarily our good, but to good. And I've walked with God long enough that I have seen it over and over. The bad things I go through, I look back on and say, oh, okay, God, now I see. <laughs> it might be just simply to give us empathy for somebody else who's going through hard times. Do you realize if you had nothing bad ever happened in your life, how would you look at anybody else who had anything bad going on in their life? Well, what's wrong with you? I've got, I'm so spiritual, I never have any problems. Why, why are you having problems in your life? How arrogant would we be if we had no problems in our life? Now, having said that, maybe some of us go through a lot more problems because we have a lot harder heads and skulls that have to be broken and, 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 and stopped. I know that's been true for me in the past. Yeah. Uh, very hard-headed, very, very hard-hearted in many cases, and I'm going, I'm a manager. I'll work my way through these problems. <laughs> I'm going to plan my way through anything that comes my way. God doesn't let your own, your own works stand up in front of him. He will knock them down and keep knocking them down until you're ready just to say, God, I give up. And then he said, well, it's about time you give up now. Let's, let's restore you. <laughs> let's make life easier for you again. But the more you want to try to do things your way, the harder time you're going to go through. That doesn't mean everything you go through is deserved. Sometimes God's just saying, do you even believe what I'm taught you? Do you believe that all things work together for good? So let's put you through a lot of trouble to see if you really believe it. Do you believe that God is sovereign and faithful? He's going to put you through some events that say, you know, do you trust him? Are you going to trust him through even things that look terrible? And I, and I like to use the word seems to or look like they're bad because they're never bad. They seem to be when we're in the middle of them. They seem to be painful and are painful when we're in the middle of them. But God has a plan. And many months ago, we put up the, the saying on it that God's plan is what we would choose if we knew everything. The problem for most of us, we're judging it by what we think we know. God, I, I have this little tiny sliver of knowledge, and this is not good. And God says, well, I've got the entire world's knowledge in my God, and I'm telling you, it is good. Question is, do we trust God? Do I trust God that when everything's going bad, that I'm going to go, God, you're still in control. God, you haven't lost your mind. You haven't gone to sleep. I, I think of a, Elijah on Mount Carmel as the, as the prophets of Baal are yelling and cutting themselves and, and everything. And, you know, it's a hilarious thing to read. And I don't know if you've read that story very often, but he goes, uh, maybe you need to yell a little louder. Maybe he's asleep. You know, maybe he went to the bathroom. <laughs> maybe he went on vacation. <laughs> you know, he's taunting these guys. Why? Because our God never sleeps, never is off the throne, never is unavailable. Now, he may seem to be when you're in the middle of the test. 
But when we're in the middle of the test, that's his job, is to be quiet and see, are you going to pass the test? My favorite statement to the inmates when I'm doing tests and they ask me, well, what's this question mean? I go, it's not my test. It's test for you. I know these answers. This is the test to you to show us what you know. When God tests us, it is not to show what he knows. It's a test to see what do you truly know and believe. It's one thing to know facts. You know, many people think they're Christians because they say, I believe in Jesus. Well, James tells us that the devils believe in Jesus. They're not going to heaven. That belief is not what gets you into heaven. The belief that gets you into heaven is the belief that says, I have no other way. If this is not right, I have no plan B. Now, you know, I told you, I'm a manager. You know how hard it is for me to have no plan B for anything? But when it comes to Christianity, there is no plan B. If Jesus isn't the way, there is no other way. There is no other hope. It's like jumping out of an airplane. You hope the parachute works. Uh, police officers believe that their Kevlar vests are going to stop a bullet. They, they watch it stop bullets on the firing range. They watch it stop bullets on the, on the test range. You know, most of them don't really believe in the vest until they actually get shot at and the bullet is stopped by the vest. Then they no longer just believe that it will work. It takes that next step of, it works. <laughs> this is where we are to be with God. Not just, I believe what he says. That's where we start, our faith. But we get to the place where, God, I know that this is all I have. If it's not right, there is no plan B. There is no other way in heaven. I'm not counting on any other way to heaven because Jesus is the only way. And if he lied to me, I'm in trouble for eternity. But you know what? And I've said this to, to many times. I know that he hasn't lied about the future. Why? Because he's been faithful in my walk here on earth. He has given me peace. He has given me comfort. He has given me, supplied my needs. Because he has been truthful in all of his word today, I know he will be truthful for eternity. And if he doesn't, I haven't lost anything. I've, I've led a good life. I've led a life that God has made very good and he's made very peaceful and calm. Does that mean I've had no problems? If anybody knows me, they know that's not true. <laughs> but he has given me strength through all the problems. He has kept me through all of it. And he keeps you through it all too, I hope. But he says he deserves glory. He says, salute every saint in Jesus Christ. Saint, do you realize that every one of us in this room, if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're a saint. We're a saint. That means a holy one separated unto service for the God of the universe. We are saints if we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. He says, greet, salute, greet, welcome. <laughs> Whatever word you want to use on that salute, it really means to very rejoicingly greet. And that's what I love around here when everybody gets together and start talking, except when it's time to start. <laughs> everybody is rejoicefully saluting one another. But he says, rejoicefully salute the saints in Christ. All the fellow believers, salute them, greet them. But I just want to really emphasize that we are saints. We have been separated unto God for service. And it's not him 
asking us to come uh, kicking and screaming into service for him. I have, I've met a lot of people go kind of, well, I've got to go serve God today. I've got to go do this. I gotta, I've got to try to do, try to do this. My attitude, if you're going to have that attitude about it, don't do it. If you're not rejoicing in serving God, don't serve him. Because there's no reward in doing a work of the flesh that doesn't want to serve him. We really should have the attitude of, I get to serve God today. How many people do you think that when they were in a royal monarchy, if they were just to be the servant of a king? Can you imagine what it would be like to be able to serve the king? Number one, you'd have one of the easiest jobs out there probably. Unless you were the food tester against a king who wanted, that people wanted to kill. But you'd have a job where you're taking care of the king in the royal palace. Greeting, bringing the, bringing the people coming in that are coming to see him. What a, what a job you would have. You know, you'd be able to go home to your family and say, you know what, I get to be with the king all day long. I get to hear what the king says. I get to be in his presence all day long. We get to serve the king of the universe each day. That's a great blessing, a great honor. And we need to look at it that way. We get to serve as a saint of Christ. Then he goes, the brethren which are with me greet you. All the saints salute you, chiefly those that are of Caesar's household. Now remember, we've been talking very early on in this book that Paul is in house arrest at this point. He is chained to two guards every four, four hour stints at a time. And he gets to talk to the people that are Caesar's workers. He's, you know, the poor soldiers, they're, they're a captive audience. How, how would you, you know, for most of us, you know, aren't like me, I get in, I told you, I get in my car and I automatically tune it to the radio that teaches. Uh, both my channels are doing much too much singing nowadays. I've got to go back to teaching. <laughs> I'm going to have to write letters to them and tell them to put more teaching on. But, you know, you put it on and there's teaching. These soldiers really weren't wanting to hear Paul teach for four hours. You know, let's listen to Paul recite his letters to all these churches. Let's listen to Paul minister God to all these people that come and visit him. You know what? They heard the gospel. And he had said that many of them have gotten saved. Many of the people chained to him got saved. This is why Paul said, I've learned to be content. How many of us would look at it, well, I'm in prison, I got, you know, it's a terrible place to be. It's a terrible place to be in prison. He was under house arrest, so it wasn't too bad. But he can't go anywhere without these two soldiers that are chained on either side of him. And how did Paul look at it? I have a captive audience to preach to for four hours. And in four hours, they're going to give you two new people to preach at for four hours. And after four more hours, they're going to give you two more people to preach to. Can you imagine going to the barracks and going, you'd be going to your sergeant or captain? Now, I don't want to go back to that guy anymore. He's nuts. Well, when your turn comes up, you're going back to him. Is that the way people look at us? They look at us as this person talks about God. This person talks about God. I met a man that I had worked for one time, and he asked me what I'm doing. I told him I'm a pastor, and he goes, I knew you'd have to be a pastor because you light up when you talk about God. Do you light up when you talk about God? 
Is he a central part of your life that you just cannot do anything but talk about him at, with people? That doesn't mean you talk about him 24-7. But can you go hours without talking about God or the Bible or church or anything about God? Or thinking about him? Meditating on him? If you can go hours without doing that, you need to really examine your life and say, do I truly have a relationship that I love God so much? He should be a primary part. He says, out of the treasures of our heart, we speak. Think about this. What do you speak about? What do you talk about in your day-to-day -day life? If you start thinking about it, you'll find out what you treasure deep in your heart. Because that is what's going to be spoken about. I've met people that I could tell you the treasure of their heart was sports. <laughs> they never could meet you without talking about sports. I've met people who the treasure of their heart is their hobbies. They'll tell you all about their current hobby forever. <laughs> you know, when people look at you, do they know that you're a Christian and Christ is the treasure of your heart? I'm not saying this to criticize anybody. I'm just saying, think about this. Is he really the treasure of your heart? When you're talking to people, is this what comes out of you? Is something about God, the Bible, the Word, something that comes out of you? One thing I love about being around new Christians, they are excited about God. Yeah. So I'm talking about somebody six months or a year in Christ. They are so excited about God. They will come and tell you all the time what, they have been, what God has shown them in the Word and the people they've talked to. You know, why do we lose that enthusiasm? Sometimes, unfortunately, it's other Christians. Other Christians that say, well, you know, well, when, you, when you've been around him a little while, you'll, you'll settle down. Or, well, that's not all that great. You know, it's new to them. It's exciting. We need to be excited for them. They've learned something brand new. You know, I can tell you, there's been lots of times when I've said, wow, that's really wonderful. And, and then, you know, just so I'm encouraging them, but I'm going, wow, that's really basic. But yeah, you're, you're a new Christian. I've told you, I used to love doing, you know, uh, at the end of the month on the Bible study, Sunday school, I would do a time of question and answer with people. And I loved it when people would come in, I've got a really hard question for you. Now, in the back of my mind is, I'm thinking, okay, it's probably a simple question, but for them, it's something that they have studied and looked up, and it's going to be something good and hard for them. And I would always tell them, that's a very good question. Even though I'd heard it a hundred times before, that's a really good question. Let's get the answer in the Bible. Why? Because they studied. They studied to try to find something to be questioned. You know, if you've ever listened to the different Bible answer shows on, on the radio, it's kind of funny. I get tired of them because you hear the same question every, you know, every couple months you hear the same question being revisited. <laughs> and those guys just do a good job with this. <laughs> you know, they're always nice and, and kind to these people as they ask these questions that have been answered a hundred times on the show, <laughs> so I don't really listen to them anymore. But, but for the people asking, they're real questions, and they have to be treated as real questions. And when I have a question from somebody, I'm going to treat it as a real question. I've shared with you how many times in my lifetime have I seen a young person, a young Christian, a youth, or a young, young person ask, well, how do you know that the Bible is true? And I've had people get scandalized that somebody would ask that question. Well, where else do you want them to ask? I want them to ask how do I know the Bible's true? How do I know there's a God? How do I know that God created the earth in six days and that evolution is false? How do I know that God can do miracles? Where do I want them asking those questions? I want them asking them in church. 
where they're going to get the right answer. Because if they don't ask them in church, they're going to get the wrong answer. They're going to be lied to. And we need to be able to say, all right, let's deal with this question. Let's look at this question. And then he ends his song with, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Grace. We have talked about grace. We sing about grace. We express about grace. And we've given you the simple definition of grace is getting everything you don't, don't deserve. God's grace. You know, he gives us mercy. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. He doesn't send us to hell. You know, have you ever heard anybody say, I just want what I deserve? You know, they don't know what they're saying. You know, oh, you want to go to hell. Well, no. Well, that's what you deserve. You just said you want just what you deserve. You want mercy. You want grace. You know, God does not need to give us anything other than the bare necessities of life. And I'm talking bare necessities. Give us a cardboard box to live in with a, with a small portion of rice to keep us alive and keep us protected. You know, that's all he's obligated. He says, I will supply all your needs. But his grace gives us so much more. His grace gives us peace. His grace gives us an abundance of possessions. His grace gives us the way, the ability to talk with others. The grace of us being in America. Do you realize that we are so specially treated in America? Almost everybody in this room probably has one or more Bibles, maybe as many as five being Christians. Do you realize that in most places of the world, if you have just a couple of pages of the Bible, you consider it a great blessing. Before the Iron Curtain fell, they would send Bibles into Russia or behind the Iron Curtain in China. And the first thing the believers did was tear the Bible apart and pass out pieces to all the people in the church so each person could have a piece of the Bible. Now we in America, that just like, you tore the Bible up? Well, it was the only Bible they had amongst 30 or 40 people. And they would spread that Bible out to everybody because of how precious they knew God's word was. How easy it is for us to find tools to study the Bible. Most of you have Bibles with commentary in it. Now, I'm not a big fan of commentary in your Bible because people read the commentary before they, before they study the word. But we have commentary so easily available to us. We have lexicons available to us. Those are dictionaries of, four, of languages. We have lexicons available to us so we can look at what the word means in the original language. We have so much available to us in America and we don't use them. We don't use them. Most Christians do not read their Bibles every day. Most Christians have never read the Bible from, from beginning to end. Now I'm hoping that most of you have because that's what we emphasize here. But our plan should be to read his book from cover to cover and then get beyond reading and learn to study. Take the next step beyond reading and study his word. Meditate upon his word. We are so blessed in America. And you know, we share, we share in the evangelism class, most Christians never share Christ with people. If we can't share Jesus Christ with people today when there's no problems with sharing it, 
there is no way we're going to share him when it gets when we may end up in prison or worse in the future if we can't share him today don't tell me you're going to share him when it, when your life is on the line you know when all we're worried about is a little bit of being made fun of well if i share the gospel with uncle so-and-so and he gets mad at me the family's going to be mad at me because i'm a religious fanatic sharing the gospel Wah, wah, wah. God said do it. And he said he's going to bring a sword between families. He says, I've come to separate mother and daughter, father and son, daughter-in-law from mother-in-law. Why? Because the gospel will bring separation. There are many people who don't want to hear the gospel. And if you've ever tried to share it with your family, you know that that's true. And most of us made a very bad job when we first get saved. We tell everybody, you need to get saved because you're going to go to hell if you don't get saved. Not really the greatest message, especially if you're talking to grandma or grandpa. Uh, yes, it's a true message probably, but it's not delivered very good. And then we spend years trying to recover from that kind of harsh stance. Right message, wrong way. We need to be able to give the message. Because if we don't tell people about Jesus Christ and that he is the only way to avoid hell, we're basically saying, I don't love you, I don't care for you, and you can go to hell for all I care. And I know that's harsh, but that's really what we're saying. If we will not share the gospel with our family members, we're basically telling them, just go to hell, I don't care. Now, and we're trying to not tell them because we supposedly love them. Now, how many parents will let their kids play in the middle of the highway because they love them and don't want to stop them from having fun? Doesn't make much sense, does it? Go ahead and play with the chemicals underneath the, uh, the, the, the cleaning, in the cleaning cabinet and you can drink anything you want, no big deal. Because I love you, you can just do what you want. We know we would never let that happen. But yet, because we love people so much, we'll let them go to hell. This is a serious place that we're at. We must tell people where their sin's going to take them. We do it lovingly, we do it kindly. Now, you're not running up to, get repent or go, go to hell. You know, that's not the way we do it, but we need to be very loving and care for them. You know, we go to them because we love them. And we let them know, I, I care that you don't go to hell. Jesus died for your sins. Because you know, if you ask people, how do you get to heaven? That's a good opening line. How do you think you get to heaven? Most people will tell you you do more good than bad. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I'll go to, God, will, God will take me to heaven because I'm pretty good. I've never murdered anybody. I don't steal too often. I don't, uh, uh, I don't lie too often. Uh, I'm not sleeping around. So I'm mostly good. God, God, will, God will take me. Why? Because they've created their own God. They've broken the third commandment. They've created their own image. Or the second commandment, they've created their own image. Of God. God is so good he'll never send anybody to hell. No, God is so good that he must send people to hell if they break his commandments and don't accept Jesus Christ because of his goodness. And one of the things we're teaching the evangelism class, you know, if somebody tells you, well, I've done a lot of bad things, but I think God will forgive me. Well, if somebody stands before the judge and says, judge, I'm a pretty good person, I just had a really bad day that day that I killed that entire family. I've never done anything like that before or afterwards. You know, judge, you should let me go. And if the judge let him go, would he be a good judge? No, that would be a terrible judge. 
God is a good judge. He judges us for what we do wrong. Not what we meant to do, not what we wanted to do, not what we, not in the areas that we obeyed him. He wants to make sure. And he's got grace for us, mercy and grace because of what Jesus did. Jesus paid the penalty. And when one of us as a Christian shows up before the Father, Jesus, our attorney, shows up and says, paid, my blood paid, the, paid for their sins. I already paid their, I paid their debt, they're mine. And he says, okay, go. go. God has an ultimate double, double jeopardy standard. Jesus paid it, and if he paid for it, it's done. If you don't accept his payment, you get to try to pay for it yourself. You got a quintillion dollar uh, debt, and you're going to have to pay for God for it, and that means eternity in hell. And he says, God's grace be on you. And then it says, this letter was written to the Philippians from Rome by Epaphroditus. I don't know if we'd really talked about this, but much of Paul's letters were written by scribes. Paul dictated them to somebody who wrote them out. And then just like every secretary or scribe would do, they cleaned it up when they get done writing it up. Sometimes when the letter that comes out of the secretary's typewriter is not even close to what was dictated other than the message is the same. They, they clean up the grammar, they clean up the, the repetitions, uh, and then they take it to the boss and say, here, read it, is this what you wanted to say? <laughs> and this is what happens in many of his letters. Epaphroditus wrote this, and he's also going to be the one that carries it back to the Philippians because he was the one that brought their, their message to Paul. So just want to encourage us, we have grace, but grace is not cheap. God paid a very high penalty for us to go to heaven and we need to always remember that it cost Jesus his life it cost the father separation from Jesus so we very rarely think about the father paying for 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 the, our sin debt but he paid as well because he was separated from the son that he had been together with for all of eternity the Holy Spirit paid the same price because he was separated from the son the whole Trinity paid a debt for our sin it's not cheap. Don't think that I can just sin and ask for forgiveness and God's going to be okay with it. He will pay. He will. If you repent and confess, he will cover it. Just as our memory verse says, he will cleanse us if we truly repent. But there'll be consequences. There will be consequences for any sin that we do, especially when we do it on purpose. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us. Lord, we ask that you go with us as we go about our, our week. Give us opportunities to share you with others. Help us pass out tracts. Help us talk with others. Help us to plant seeds so that people do not go to hell. Lord, we want to live in your grace. We want to live in your mercy. And we just thank you for, for everything you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.